you too will speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chad's coming up to uh, speak now, but a question for Chad. Chad's the father of Savannah and Noah, both adults. What is one responsibility of a father about ad uh, of adult children? Um, I was thinking about this. Um, they, uh, there's an old movie, um, not Father of the Bride, the Steve Martin one, but an older Steve Martin movie called Parenthood. And there's this great line in Parenthood that says, you never cross the finish line as a parent. And uh, some of the other older parents um, know that. So a lot of you will know what it means to have the sleepless nights, you know, during the baby years and coaching your kids through primary and high school. Um, but it doesn't stop as they hit university and uh, enter into their first jobs, enter into relationships and all of these things. The one great benefit um, of the way God designed us is that we've all gone through those things ahead of them. And so... Parissa and I still continue to get phone calls and texts and how do you do this and what happens with taxes and what happens with this, you know, money matter or whatever the case might be. So you just keep coaching. You just keep um, being a friend and a parent all, all the way through uh, to the very end, which kind of leads nicely into what we're going to be talking about today and, and beginning our new series on on. Christian doctrines, and I want to think a little bit about why we are doing this. Um, earlier this year, our CP High students began going through uh, a course called the Alpha Course that looks at some of the basic teachings of the Bible. Later this year, in Term 4, our upper primary school students will begin a course called What is a Christian? where they will also be looking at some of these basic doctrines. And I thought, well, this is a really good time, a good year for all of us to be thinking about these things together. Um, as I've been watching the foundations being laid over at Strathfield, you know, the new building project, the first thing they do is they lay these slabs, these slabs of concrete, and they build the walls around it so it's one connected building. But without these foundations, um, of course, the walls are going to move and the building is not going to be secure. And God has given us a number of foundations that our faith is built on. Um, and when we talk about the doctrines, these teachings, why do we have all of these, you know, different, you know, these bodies of teachings? Well, a lot of us are familiar, familiar with the term um, gospel, and we know that as Christians, we're supposed to share the gospel or the good news about Jesus. Well, in some ways, the whole Bible is, you know, points to the gospel and the good news about Jesus. But if someone says, share the good news with me, well, we probably don't have, there's over 900 chapters in the Bible, and they probably don't have that sort of time. But then we have four gospels, you know, that's, they're only 10% of the whole Bible. So 89 chapters, but that's still a lot of material to go through. But in the New Testament, there are these little condensed statements where we're told that the good news of the gospel is really about God's plan to save humanity through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, that only takes a few seconds to share. But, of course, there'll be a lot of questions that surround that. Questions like, well, who is this God? And who is this Jesus? And why do we need to be saved in the first place? And so then we need to go back to these frameworks, these basic foundational questions that answer the, the whole 
perspective of, of our Christian worldview. The fact that there is a God in heaven, the fact that he has a son. If we go to our next slide, um, you'll see that I've printed out um, the Apostles' Creed. How many of you have ever been in churches where people have recited the Apostles' Creed? Just out of curiosity. Okay, about well, more than half of us. So in a lot of churches, it's still really important that this creed is recited. And there are other creeds as well. But in some ways, what this does is it takes all of the teachings of the Bible, but it reduces it down to a few key points. So if you can see it, there's the beginning of the, the, the teaching about God as Father, the God of creation, about Jesus and his work of salvation, about the Holy Spirit, about the church and the people of God and their role, about the final judgment and salvation and eternal life. And so a lot of these creeds are really can be reduced, as I looked online, maybe down to around 10 statements or 10 basic doctrines, and that is what we're going to go through during this time. Just a reminder, if questions come up, because the, the goal of this series is to have a shorter sermon and more Q&A time, because that's how we learn these sorts of things, but you also might have a response. It doesn't have to just be a question. You might have, uh, well, based on what I heard today about God, here is how I want to respond to God so you can do that as well. Final thing I want to say, and this is in your bulletin, um, there is a, a good study on Christian beliefs by Stephen Eyre. If you want to have a look at this, um, you can get this online or through Kurong, um, a great guide for your home groups or for personal study as well. So today we come to the doctrine of God, and if we can just have our next slide up. Um, this reminded me a bit of Father's Day because... Um, my oldest child, my daughter Savannah, um, as she was growing up, she was never a fan of church music. She just said, it doesn't sound like anything that I have on my playlist. And so she just didn't, you know, get into church music whole, a whole lot. But there is one song that, as far as I know, is still on her playlist to this day. It's the song by Chris Tomlin, Indescribable. And uh, it's this majestic song, you know, it talks about how this indescribable God, you know, flings stars into space. He's the, the master of this whole great universe. God is indescribable. And in some ways, as we start going through a doctrine series, we need to be reminded of this. The temptation for us all is to say, we can describe God in just three simple words that all start with G. Or we can, you know, build this little box with four sides and we can put God inside of it. And one thing we need to remember is that God is eternal. God is immense. None of us have, you know, as many of us have, have traveled in this congregation, no one has combed every inch of the world that we live in and knows everything that there is to know about this tiny speck of dust in the universe called Earth. But if we go out beyond that, there is this vast universe that literally turns Earth into a speck of dust and we haven't even begun to know what is out in the universe. Well, God is before all of that, and he holds that universe in his hand. We have the rest of eternity to get to know God, and we will need the rest of eternity to get to know God, because he is immense, and he, in a sense, is indescribable. Except for the fact that the Bible describes him, and that's the great paradox. God is not unknowable. We don't say, well, God is just too huge to know and we just can't work him out. God can be known, but not because we are so smart or if we're scientific enough, we can work him out. 
We can know God because God has made himself known. God has wanted to be the known God. And so he gives us these revelations of himself in the opening chapter to Hebrews. He talks about how he's made himself known through the apostles and the prophets. We know that he's been made himself known through the creation and ultimately through his son, Jesus. In all of these ways, God has revealed himself to us. So today we're going to look at four big revelations about our God. So, revelation number one, if we can just bring on our next one. The Lord our God is one. Um, this comes from Deuteronomy. It's actually known as the Shema Israel. Shema meaning here and Israel. Hear Israel, the great here. This is, this is one thing that you really need to know. The Lord our God is one. And this is really significant. If you've only ever grown up knowing about one God, maybe you don't appreciate this in the way that you should. But the fact that there is one and only one God, and he has created heaven and earth, and he has created us, changes everything. It means that we don't live in a dualistic world. If you go back to some of the other creation stories that were around at the time that these verses were being written, you see a world of various pagan gods who were at war with one another, and all of the disasters and problems in the world are described because basically up in the heavenlies, the gods are at war. Or if you followed, you know, sort of Greek mythology, which comes out in a lot of movies to this day, it influences a lot of our cartoons and a lot of, you know, the fables of today. All of these things exist because Zeus and his father and different gods and they're at war with each other and they have their own domains and the god of the land and the god of the sea and the god of the sky, they're all against one another and that explains the chaos of this world. But in a really radical way, Genesis comes out and says something that no one else had been saying at this time. There's only one God and he made everything the heavens and the earth and everyone who lives in it. There's only one God who made us all, and we are his image bearers. And also, when the Bible talks about God being one, we know that he's also, we, we get revealed to us that God is Trinity. Now, this is a word that doesn't appear in the Bible, but the doctrine of the Trinity is very clearly revealed. Trinity literally means the triunity, that God is one God and yet three persons. Now, we could spend sermons upon sermons on the, on the Trinity, and I kind of get bugged because I feel like discussions about the Trinity have kind of turned into this weird philosophical word game that no one can play very well, and God wants to be known. This shouldn't be a grand mystery. So the only thing I want to say about the Trinity today is that I think we sometimes get tied up about the mystery of the Trinity trying to make a math mathematical sense out of three and one. How can three be one and one be three? And you hear people talk about, well, a clover can have three leaves, but it's only one plant, and you know, water can exist in steam and ice and liquid, and you know, there are three dimensions to space, but you know, ultimately there's only one space. And all of these things may be a little bit helpful, but the mystery isn't how three can be one. The mystery is why three are one. And what the Bible teaches 
very clearly is that what is so unique about the Trinity is that when we look at Jesus' baptism and the voice of God thunders from heaven and says, this is my son, as Jesus comes up out of the water, and he sends the Holy Spirit in physical form so we can see him, and we can see this picture, we can hear this picture of the Trinity, but one of the things that begins to be revealed is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are on about exactly the same thing. You see, I've seen sons that are a lot like their dads and daughters that are a lot like their moms. I've even known identical twins that people can't tell apart, and they have that weird twin, you know, telepathy where they can hand each other things before they, the other one even asks. But at the end of the day, they're different people. They have their own mind. They have their own will. They are not exactly the same. They don't want to be exactly the same. But when you talk about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they share the exact same essence. Yes, they are three different, distinct people, but it's different from any human being we've ever seen. Because if we want to put it this way, the mind of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the exact same mind. The will of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the exact same will. The heart, the love, the vision, the, the hopes, the dreams are all exactly the same. That's why Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The words I'm speaking, I, I speak to give honor to my Father, and yet it's the Father speaking through me. The things that I do is the Father working through me, and it's me acting in obedience to the Father, and the Spirit that he sends to live in us are there to draw our hearts and minds to the Father and to the Son. So rather than us getting mixed up on how three can be one and trying to make mathematical sense, we just need to understand the great mystery of the Trinity is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, but they are exactly one and the same God. So, our God is one, and he made all things, and we are created in his image, and that is how we make sense of the world. The second thing, if we can just bring up our next slide, is that God is eternal, and that he is limitless. And I just want to explore some of those eternal ideas. First of all, we hear throughout the Bible that the Lord is God Almighty. Because he is eternal, because he sits above the heavens and the earth, he is not limited by space and time the way that we are. There is no weakness in him. Again, he holds the universe in his hand. There is nothing that he can't do. His own creation can't limit him or tie him down in any way. He is almighty. We also know that he is all-knowing. He is not confined by space and time. There's a whole bunch of stuff I don't know because it happened before me and I wasn't here. There's a whole bunch of stuff that will happen in the future that I don't know because I will never see it. But God is eternal. The scriptures say he knows the end from the beginning. It's all one and the same to him. There is no area, there is no arena, there is no subject matter where he says, oh, that's not really my thing. He made all things He's well aware of his creation. He knows all things. And also, he is everywhere. One of my favorite psalms that's listed up there says, where can I flee from your spirit? You know, if I go up to the highest mountain, God is there. If I go into the depths of the sea, he is there. If I go up into outer space, if I go into the deepest valley, wherever I go, God is there. Again, in the pagan worlds, you know, the, there was the domain of the land gods and there was the domain of 
Poseidon, the sea gods, and there were the gods of the sky, and there were different gods, and they didn't have power in one another's domain. But God has power everywhere because he is everywhere. And in him, all things live and move and have their very being. Your next breath comes from God. Your life comes from God. The, su the sustaining of this earth and this universe is right now happening because God does this. He is everywhere present. But it's not just that he has all of these powers. We also know that he is sovereign. That means he rules. Sometimes God gets accused of, you know, being asleep somewhere or he has powers, but why doesn't he exercise them? The scriptures say that he is sovereign. That means that he is ruling his universe and he is ruling his people, even though we can't always see how that is being done. So, he has all of these great powers, and then finally he doesn't change. Again, in the pagan world, you could manipulate God. Remember when we did the whole, you know, Balaam's donkey thing, and they kept offering these different sacrifices? Because people can be manipulated, and gods can be manipulated. But we have the confidence that our God is always holy, and that he doesn't change. Which leads us to our third revelation, that God is good and holy. I think one of the most popular prayers children used to pray when I was growing up was a simple one that says, God is great, God is good, and we thank him for our food. Um, God is good. And again, that's something that we might think, well, of course, that's obvious, but it's something that we don't want to take for granted. Again, in the pagan world, the gods aren't necessarily good. There are some really bad gods out there. There are some gods that are tricky, that are deceitful, that don't have your best interests at heart, and you need to get on side with one God to protect you from another God, and that's the way that the gods of the pagan world work. But our God is always good, and as Jason was reading, you might have noticed that it, as each and every part of creation was, was made, and God said, it's good. And when he stood back at the very end and looked at everything he had made, said, it's very good. And it was very good because it came from a very good God. And next week, we're going to have to look at the question, so then where did evil come from and the problem of evil and sin? And, and we will get to that. But one of the reasons that a lot of people say that the sciences began and all of that is because there was this basic belief that the world isn't chaotic, that it's been designed, and that it has been ordered and it has been structured, and therefore we can study it. You can't make sense of chaos, but because there is a good God who made everything in the way he wanted it to be made, even amongst the chaos of sin and evil, we can still see that basic goodness and that basic order, and we know that God is good, and we know one of my favorite verses of the Bible from 1 John, that God is love, and therefore God is always working for your good, and he is always working out of love. And then, finally, um, we're told that, just next slide, please, that God is the righteous judge. God is the righteous judge. And I found this um, quote online, our God is righteous enough or right enough to judge. Corrupt judges can't judge well. He is righteous enough to judge, but he's kind enough to forgive. I want to 
talk about this verse in a second, but just recently I heard a Jewish comedian telling this um, very bizarre joke. And he said um, there was this old Jewish man who had survived the Holocaust, and finally he dies and he goes to heaven and he stands before God and he says, God, I have this hilarious joke to tell you about the Jewish Holocaust. And he tells the joke and he starts laughing and God looks at him and he says, I'm sorry, I don't find the Holocaust funny. And the Jewish man looks back and says, well, I guess you had to be there. And the point of the joke is, where was God during the Holocaust? You know, this great God who has all of this power and he's everywhere at once and he knows all things, then, then why does he allow these horrible things to happen? And it's as if, you know, God's greatest crime is that he has the power to stop things, but he doesn't seem to care. The scriptures declare that God is a righteous judge and he cares greatly. And that he cares enough about sin to allow this chaos to keep pointing us back to God in the same way that sickness drives us to the doctor and hunger drives us to food, we are to look at the horror and the chaos of this world and to say what has gone wrong and to acknowledge our sin and to cry out to our good God. And yet God is loving enough that he hasn't abandoned us to this chaos, he's actually sent his one and only son. And we'll, again, look at this more in future weeks, but the cross of Jesus Christ tells us that God is a righteous judge and that he is a loving father. The fact that God would punish his one and only son for the sin of humanity means he cares greatly about the sin and the evil of this world. If he didn't care, why would he punish his one and only dearly loved son? But he also sent his one and only son to die because he wants to save us. And so the chaos of this world, the evil of this world, the bad in this world should tell us that something has gone wrong and we need a savior. And yet God has sent us that savior, Jesus Christ, so that he can forgive us and love us and give us eternal life. So we're told uh, in Romans, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. God doesn't punish right now because he is still patiently waiting for people to repent. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. How can God be right and justify sinners? Well, the cross tells us how this is possible. So that leads us to um, the psalm that we heard um, at the very beginning. So how do we respond to this great God? And I, I found this slide, and I like it, because... Uh, we're reminded that he, when he talks about man, he's also talking about humanity. And earlier on in the psalm, in verse 2, he says, Lord, Lord, our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory in the heavens, and yet through the praise of children and infants, you have established 
your praise. In other words, this indescribable God of the universe has placed his praise on the lips of infants and children. The, the great God of the universe is not distant from us. He loves us as his children. He is our heavenly Father. And he has created us just a little lower than the angels. And he has crowned us with glory and honor. He has bestowed his love upon us. And we have dignity because we are people created in his image. And when we understand that, we understand the world that we live in and who we are and what we are meant to be. Because God is the creator of all things, we owe him relationship. Because he is one, we owe him our sole allegiance. Because he is limitless, we can trust him absolutely. And because he is good and just and merciful, we can approach him through Jesus Christ with faith and hope and love. Let's sing our song of response and we'll have a chance for your questions and your comments.